Hi guys, this is Kim C. Welcome to the year of underrated Stephen King. We are about to dive into our very first novel analysis on the podcast, of which I'm very excited. I just finished it up, so it's pretty fresh in my mind. I'm ready to dive in with you guys. I feel like I'm a little bubbling stew pot, and we're going to kind of dive in there and mix it up. So we're first going to start with a little bit of background info on the novel. Uh, it was published in 2009, so a little a little over 10 years ago. Um, it is quite a hefty one, guys. This was a little bit of a labor of love. It's clocking in at 1,072 pages, which is... Uh, it was, it was big. It took me a little while. However, um, there's a lot going on. It was a pretty, pretty uh, crazy, dramatic, climactic story. Um, so it, um, I feel it was really worth it in the end. There's lots of good stuff we're going to talk about. Before I go into a brief synopsis, I kind of want to talk about how I want to structure this. Um, We're going to go for about half an hour, and then uh, if I have any remaining thoughts, we'll maybe do a part two to this. Um, So I'm going to break this down into a couple sections, maybe about four sections. The first section, I'm going to look at what's unique about this novel. Um, I'm going to talk about what I thought was, was working well, what was... Um, individual, so we're going to really kind of highlight the parts that I feel really set this novel apart. Um, Also in that same section, it's going to be what's unique and straight from the text. So I do want to bring you some of the writing in the the episode. So there is a page that I found that I feel really sort of highlights uh, some of the good stuff I'm going to talk to you about. Um, The second section is heroes, villains, and honorable mentions. So so this is a huge novel for characters. So we're going to talk about some of the some of the bad guys, some of the good guys, and who uh, who shined bright, and who I wanted to strangle with my bare hands. So uh, we'll uh, segue into that here in a little bit. And then um, the other section I want, for lack of a better phrase, I'm deciding if I want to call it reader observations or um, in graduate school, I had a professor when we were in workshop for fiction who would just say, all right, what's working and what's not? And so that's kind of what I titled this section, what's working, what's not, where I want to go into the criticisms a little bit and I want to look at some of the areas of the novel that I had a few problems with or just left me wanting a little bit more um, or the things that I felt were done well as well. So we'll kind of uh, be focusing on that in that little section. And then lastly, I'm just going to talk about... um, some final thoughts a la Jerry Springer. Um, just some some parting things. There's a couple areas where I feel the writing really got sexy again as the novel started to conclude. So we're going to talk about a few character arcs and um, some of my, my uh, overall um, observations of the story. And we'll just sort of conclude it out and talk about why this is one that non-Stephen King readers should take a look at. And 
um, I would like to hear from Stephen King readers who might have gotten really pissed off by this book. I'd like to hear from you guys as well, um, because we'll talk about those hotbed areas, those potholes that we all might have fallen into um, in terms of being pleased by this novel. Um, And uh, overall, how it's, I feel we can't really hold it next to some of the longer ones that are very celebrated, such as, you know, The Stand, It, Salem's Lot, Um, So those will be some of the final thoughts that we explore together. So we're going to go for about half an hour. We'll see where we're at. at, And then um, I'll do a part two and and hopefully won't take up too much of your day. Bless you all for being with me. Um, But uh, let's dive into what's unique. So uh, right off the bat, when you, uh, I have a hardcover with me. When you open the novel, there is a little map of the fictional town of Chester's Mill, which I forgot the synopsis. All right, so for those of you who have never read Under the Dome before, in a a really quick sentence or two, it is a story about the town of Chester's Mill, which is a fictional main town just north of Castle Rock. There's about 2,000 residents uh, who live there. And one crisp fall lovely day in October, uh, a force field of energy appears and encapsulates the town in a dome. No one can get out and no one can get in. And when you walk up to the dome, there's a little bit of an electric shock sensation in the body um, and uh, everybody is trapped therein. The novel unfolds seven days of being under the dome. And so that is... uh, The quest is for everybody inside the dome, everybody outside the dome, and what it is, and who put it there. So that is a little bit of the synopsis as we dive in. Uh, After we see the little interactive map on the first um, page, we have a character glossary with a lot of names, my friends. I counted all of them. There are 65 characters! Ah! 65 and three dogs making it a total of 68 and at the top Stephen says approximately everybody in Chester's Mill so that means there's probably a few more names in the text that just aren't in the glossary so we're looking at 70 plus people um if you could see me right now, I have my hands in in my fingers look like threes, and I made them look like a W, and my mouth is an O, and I'm going, wow, because um, 70 characters, I have never in my life, I don't think, uh, recall ever reading a novel with that many characters. Um, yeah, my mind is a little bit blown. My brain is a little liquefied and dripping out my ears. Um, however, reading the novel uh, and getting into it, I realized that he paints these people in a unique way where their personality shines really bright. You are able to differentiate them with ease um, for the most part. There are one or two that blur together a little bit, but we'll talk about those. Um, I think that's a large criticism that is uh, placed against this book is either people think that's too damn many characters or because there's so many, there's really not a lot of character depth um, that we see in some of uh, King's earlier big works. But 
Mr. King shines in these ensemble cast novels. For those of you who have read Salem's Lot, The Stand, It, um, th- those novels are jam-packed with characters. And I don't think there's as many as this one, but there are quite a few. And I really feel he shines very bright in Um, building a world, building a community, and that's what he does in this book. He builds the town of Chester's Mill, and all of these people come together and come to life. Um, There are some that are definitely um, uh, supporting characters. They're not as rich, they're not as in-depth as maybe we would like them to be, but when we step back and look at the novel in its totality, I think it kind of works, so we'll talk about that a little bit more as we get into it. So the ensemble cast, we've got a ton of characters, so that's what's pretty unique about this book. The other thing I've noticed is we have a really, really strong third-person omniscient narrator. It really highlights throughout, um, it really gives the reader that dramatic irony that the reader knows everything and the poor people of Chester's Mill are in the dark. So the reader is really given that power as the narration just highlights everything that's happening at all times. We also have a really cool bird's eye point of view throughout where I I do really feel the bird literally uh, of just looking down on Chester's Mill. I think the map definitely helps with that because uh, there were several moments in the novel where I would flip to the front and look at the map and look at, okay, Route 117, Route 119. Okay, where's the flower shop? Where is the... And so that bird's eye um, le- allowed me to really feel like I was looking down on everybody on um, this little town. That was pretty cool. That was pretty cool and very palpable in the narration. Um, another really fun aspect of all of these characters and the point of view is the three dogs I mentioned, very, very key to the story. They do pop up in wonderful moments, bring a lot of lightness and um, and uh, good nature to uh, a very heavy, heavy theme uh, and, and at times very dark subject. But one of my favorites is Horace the Corgi, who belongs to the town uh, journalist Julia Shumway. And he <laughs> hears a voice from the beyond who asks him to be a good dog and help get a certain um, stack of important papers to the right people and so he is hunting for popcorn underneath the couch and <laughs> it's juvenile and but precious at the same time and only Mr. King can do that can make me you know love a little segue into the mind of a precious corgi so much so we've got a ton of characters like a metric ton of characters um, in this story really cool narration And that leads me to uh, the page I want to read for you guys. I found a page in the novel that I felt was just super sexy, and I thought it was really encompassing the strong narration as well as a huge roll call of everybody um, up until this point. So if you have a hardcover with you and would like to look at it with me, this is at the bottom of page 38. It's just, and then uh, most of page 439. Uh, Just a forewarning, at the bottom of the um, 
paragraph or the page, there is a small description of suicide. So if that is going to be unsettling for you or unwanted in your day, by all means, please fast forward this because I don't, you know, I don't want that for anybody. Uh, so just a heads up, there's a little bit, uh, it does end on a little bit of a dark note. So I would like to read this page for you and then we'll talk about, um, we'll talk about it. All right. Not everyone sees the pink stars. Like the Appleton kids, Rusty Everett's little jays are fast asleep. So is Piper. So is Andrea Grinnell. So is the chef, sprawled on the dead grass beside what might be America's biggest methamphetamine lab. Ditto Brenda Perkins, who cried herself to sleep on her couch with the Vader printout scattered on the office cape on the coffee table before her. The dead also do not see unless they look from a brighter place than this darkling plain where ignorant armies clash by night. Myra Evans, Duke Perkins, Chuck Thompson, and Claudette Sanders are tucked away in the Bowie funeral home. Dr. Haskell, Mr. Carty, and Rory Dinsmore are in the morgue of Catherine Russell Hospital. Lester Coggins, Dodie Sanders, and Angie McCain are still hanging out in the McCain pantry. So is Junior. He is between Dodie and Angie, holding their hands. His head aches, but only a little. He thinks he might sleep the night here. On Mountain Road in East Chester, not far from the place where the attempt to breach the dome with an experimental acid compound is even then going on beneath the strange pink sky, Jack Evans, husband of the late Myra, is standing in his backyard with a bottle of Jack Daniels in one hand and his home protection weapon of a choice of choice, a Ruger SR9 in the other. He drinks and watches the pink stars fall. He knows what they are, and he wishes on everyone, and he wishes for death, because without Myra, the bottom has dropped out of his life. He might be able to live without her, and he might be able to live like a rat in a glass cage, but he cannot manage both. When the falling meteors become more intermittent, this is around quarter after 10, about 45 minutes after the shower began, he swallows the last of the jack, casts the bottle onto the grass, and blows his brains out. He is the mill's first official suicide. He will not be the last. All right, friends. Thank you for listening to uh, story time. So for me, I was about 400 pages into the novel when I found that and just kind of had to pause at the awesomeness for a second. I felt that perfectly encompassed what I like so much about this novel, which is a million people uh, that he boils down to this one moment. So all the chess pieces are visible for the reader at that moment. Everybody he's been setting up and introducing us to are now on one page together, which is pretty cool. And then that final he is the mill's first official suicide. He will not be the last. That commanding third person omniscient narration um, also shines really bright in that uh, page as well. So I really enjoyed uh, that one and wanted to share that with all of you. Hopefully uh, you enjoyed it as much as I did. I know that it might have been a little bit like what the hell's going on, uh, given that it's mostly just a bunch of names, but 
uh, when you're 400 pages in, uh, those names, believe it or not, you know who everybody is. And so it's kind of cool seeing them all uh, relatively in close proximity to one another. So that is about all that I have for the unique portion and the straight from the text. That was the, there are lots more uh, little areas that I wanted to share with you guys, especially for whatever reason, uh, Mr. King and his genius right around page 800, you'd think he'd, he'd get a little tired. You'd think he would slow down, but right around then he just ramps it up and then the writing gets even more amazing. So I found even more passages to to admire after page 800 as we started to get into act three. Uh, so uh, we'll talk more about that in some of the other parts that I liked. But now let's transition to heroes, villains, and honorable mentions. All right, after wetting my whistle, the big villain that i think goes without saying if you have read this novel you you probably will still remember his name because oh man guys i have yet to have read somebody like big jim rennie in a stephen king novel before i have never felt so murderous in my own skin than reading about this guy i really became unglued um, as I was reading this novel. I've never wanted to strangle someone more with my bare hands. I wanted to dive into the book and walk up behind Big Jim Rennie and just like bludgeon him with whatever I could find. I wanted him to choke on a sandwich. I wanted him to just get struck by lightning a hundred times. I hate this man with the fire of a thousand suns. So, um, a little bit about Big Jim Rennie. He he really does steal the show in terms of he he's his evil is very prominent and it sticks around way too long. Um, but he is a used car salesman in Chester's Mill who really climbs up the ladder of city politics to where I think he has a seat on the city council. Uh, he is obsessed with power, really just wants to control Chester's Mill. He is an incredibly obnoxious um Christian fundamentalist and that all turns out to be a facade for he is a cold-blooded murderer and and a drug kingpin Um, so he's murdered several people without hesitation and then he is also with several other people in the town responsible for a giant methamphetamine lab that is um, disguised as a faith-based radio station so the disgustingness of this guy is just off the charts. Um, in addition to that, he is just a complete narcissist and um, pretty, pretty horrible. And uh, oh man, yeah, I have, he just really made my skin crawl because I think there's, whereas with the other Stephen King villains we have when they're just so monstrous and evil and committing terrible things, this guy is a wolf in sheep's clothing. So he is beloved and respected and admired and just held in high esteem by various people throughout the town. And I think that's what makes it so terrible. 
is he is um, behind closed doors, the worst person ever. And yet in the public eye of this novel, everyone just thinks he's God's gift. And it's it's a quite a very uncomfortable position for the reader to be in. So he really steals the show. He is the big bad. And then secondary to Big Jim Rennie is of course his, uh, his offspring, Junior Rennie, because he fouled the earth and created um, an equal monster. Um, Junior Rennie is slightly different, um, but in terms of villainy, he's still pretty gross and horrific as he too is a murderer. But what's different here is Junior Rennie has an inoperable brain tumor that he doesn't know about. We hear about that pretty early on from the narration, um, who lets us know uh, pretty quick that Junior's uh, got a ticking time bomb in his brain. So as the reader, you feel a little bit of pity for him, but not much because this brain tumor makes him pretty crazy and pretty scary. So we've got Big Jim Runny and Junior Runny, and uh, attached to him are a couple other city city thugs and who become policemen because once the dome sort of encapsulates encapsulates the town um big jim rennie steps in and tries to take over so with him comes a lot of people that um that are no good uh for those of you who have read the stand it's a little bit similar to those gathering on the side of the light and those gathering on the side of the dark. This is kind of nice. It, it is a little oversimplified, but it works. It works when you have a million characters where you're like, all right, you're a bad guy. You're a good guy. Um, I think sometimes that's needed in, in a novel just to kind of give you that solid ground to keep going and follow the narration. So those guys are uh, the worst. We'll talk about those a little bit later, um, especially Jim Rennie um, in uh, the fourth portion about what's working, what's not, because I do have some more thoughts on him. But I also wanted to mention um, another one of my favorite characters named Piper Livy. She is a minister in town. And what we have in this novel, we do have a lot of Christian fundamentalism, and it is in a very negative light, mostly because it's all fabricated and fake because the people who are ostentatiously, you know, showing their faith are all rotten to the core. They're very much like gilded frames. They're shining bright in the sun, but underneath it's all rotted wood. Whereas Piper Libby is real. She is real gold. Um, she's a really cool character. She is um, another minister in town who suffered a great personal loss. I believe she lost her husband and her son in a tragic accident. It's not really revealed or I might be drawing a blank on what exactly happened to them. But she really is walking the walk of faith to where she's struggling with it. She has doubts. She prays with tears in her eyes on her knees. But we see her in beautiful moments of being a good Samaritan. And she supports the town. She, uh, even though she's having her own sort of personal crises, she's there and she's walking. Um, she's walking the walk. And I really enjoyed having a character like Piper who is genuine 
um, in the same space as some of these other rotten eggs. That So I think um, she was a good balance. I actually wish there was more, more from Piper because she was so lovely. Um, I have a, only two more that I'm gonna mention because I can't mention um, all 70 or, you know, I can't, uh, I could I could really stay here all day and talk about all the characters, but um, the other two I want to mention are really just tipping my hat to Mr. King in terms of the surprises he gives us with some of the characters. So one of them is an older, kind of a lost soul character, and I've noticed in the novels that I've read from Stephen King that he he kind of gives you some surprises with the characters that you can write off as a lost cause or a lost soul. Um, one of my favorites in this story is the town drunk, unfortunately, for lack of a better phrase. He is, his name is Sloppy Sam Verdreau. They, uh, that's what he's nicknamed in the town been in Chester's Mill forever and he's just has a really terrible addiction and when we see Sloppy Sam it's really at his worst and his most desperate. He's sort of a victim of the thug police force and he's not doesn't really have a lot of scenes where he's um, in a dignified state. However, when he shows up you kind of read it and say oh that's kind of sad and then you move on to the next character but then um, King brings him back in an amazing way to where he he shines brighter than I ever thought he could and gives you a whole bunch of surprises and so um, I love I love that I love that um, he is used in a, in a really powerful way to where um, it's redemptive and it it definitely brings a smile to the reader I think um, another one is uh, the senior a senior citizen uh, character her name is Henrietta Clavard and I love when Mr. King writes senior citizens he makes them feisty and he just makes them explode with colorful craziness and hilarity and uh, Henrietta is 84 and she kind of shows up uh, with her wit and sass and she's at the dome barrier with um, her can of ginger ale that's half vodka, half soda and she calls it a Canada dry rocket and she's passing it around to, to anybody who would like a tipple and she's just a sweetheart and just she she's not on screen for very long but they just make an impact and so I really encourage Anybody who might have read reviews on this book is like, oh, I read the ending sucks. It's like, don't, don't rush it. Don't brush it off just because of, of that. What I would like is I would encourage you to dive in and get a magnifying glass on these characters and really look at what King creates um, because there's some treasure here. There's some treasure with these, these uh, people who come on to the scene and have amazing dialogue that reveals so much character and individuality from all walks of life and he just makes them shine so bright so i really encourage um everybody to participate in this book as a character study alone so if i was to sell it to students of mine i would say let's look at this novel for characters you might find that some are you know there might be a bit too many in the party and you could maybe um, after reading it you could kind of go back in your mind and say eh, 
I would maybe ax that one or maybe I would develop this person more or this guy just is too similar to this guy. But overall, when they all come together, you as the reader are looking down on these people in this little town like a bird soaring over. And it's a pretty cool feeling and I really like that King just brings so many side dishes to the table. It's like a giant Thanksgiving buffet full of these characters, um which was very unique and very cool to be a part of. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a mini break. Um I'm going to conclude this one. So let's go ahead and maybe get your copy of the book, uh get it something to drink and <laughs> we'll be back with part 2. I just have a few more things to talk about in terms of what's working and then we are going to talk about the ending a little bit. I'm going to keep it really vague. I'm going to keep it pretty mysterious. Um but we got to talk about it guys. We just got to because that's sort of the elephant in the room with this novel, with this large story that's kind of, you know, the the big the the big thing we got to talk about. So, um everybody, let's have a little bathroom break. Thank you for joining me and then I'm going to come back with part 2 here in just a couple minutes and just talk about a couple more things. Thank you for hanging out with me. Yay! Thank you.